first, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me here. This is really uh, an, an incredible honor, and thank you uh, to, to Dean Krauss and everyone else uh, who's made me feel so at, at home. Uh, this is my first time visiting St. John's, but I, I can tell this is my kind of place. Uh, I really, I, 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 I just love, love the feeling that I've gotten from the, the students and, 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 and tutors that I've, uh, that, that I've met, and really looking forward to not only talking to you, but uh, hearing, getting your feedback and, 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 and having a discussion with you after. So thanks so much for having me. I'm going to see how far I can get from the microphone. I guess this is a pretty big room. If I go over here, you can't hear me, right? Can you hear me in the back? Yeah, yeah? all right, good. I'll, I'll just go like this if you need me to get closer to the mic. Um, I'll try to do it. So this is called uh, Beyond Point and Shoot Morality, Why Cognitive Science Matters for Ethics. Uh, and I'm going to try to convince you that the structure of our moral thinking is kind of like the structure of this camera here, and that the different features of this camera and the different features of our moral thinking map on in interesting and perhaps illuminating ways to competing moral philosophies that people have been arguing about uh, for, for centuries. So. Uh, Begin with the, with the fundamental problem. If you're, if you're a scientist studying morality but trying to say things about what's really right or wrong, and this is the, the, the big bright line between what ought to be and what is. And philosophers going back to Hume and, 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 and before that, I think have rightly said that you can't just go from this stuff to this. That is, if you want to know what's really right and wrong, how ought we live, what ought we do, Simply describing the messy moral world as it is, how our moral behavior actually it is, how our moral thinking actually works, it doesn't tell you what's really right or wrong. And so philosophers have, for the most part, just said, this is our world up here. And yeah, psychology, biology, economics, whatever it is, you guys can do your thing and describe uh, the messy, nasty world, but we're going to try to figure out how things ought to be. Now, I, I actually respect the is-ought divide. I really think that there is a, there's a deep difference here. It's not just that they kind of grade into each other. But I do think that understanding the is can not determine the ought, but inform the ought. And I think the key bridge is moral intuition. That when we are thinking about what ought to be, when we make judgments about what's right or what's wrong, we rely on our instincts, on our intuitions. That just seems wrong. That seems perfectly fine. And those intuitions are something we rely on in deciding what's right or what's wrong, but they're also psychological processes. They're ultimately neural processes. They're little cells in your brain uh, f f firing and, and making each other fire and ultimately producing things like behavior, your mouth moving and saying, that's wrong. Uh, so what I think is that by understanding those processes, we can meaningfully inform this. And that's, that's what I'm going to try to convince you of. So here's the, the outline for the talk. Uh, so first, I'm going to talk about some research giving you a flavor for what I call dual process morality. And this is, this is the idea that the brain is like the camera, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. And then we're going to drill a little deeper into some of our moral intuitions and try to find out what exactly we're responding to, what pushes our moral buttons. And then I'll get to, uh, to back to philosophy. That is, what, what implications, if any, does this have for what's right or wrong? So I hope this seems like a sensible plan. We will proceed. All right. So part one, dual process morality. Now, you, you guys are all uh, learned scholars, and so you no doubt rec recognize these two guys here. Uh, but, it, but just to put it all on the table, so this is, uh, this is John Stuart Mill, uh, who many of you know as, as, as one of the founding fathers of utilitarianism. Uh, the utilitarian idea, in a nutshell, is that right and wrong is really about consequences. Uh, and and that, that 
Acting well is ultimately acting in ways according to principles that will produce good consequences in the end. It's basically cost-benefit analysis applied in a moral, impartial kind of way. So not what's good for me, but what's good for us on the whole. That's sort of Mill's idea, and he's not the only one, but he's, he's my favorite. Okay, and then we have Kant over here. Kant looks at these things very differently. He says, yes, it's nice to try to make things go well. It's good to produce good consequences, but morality fundamentally is about certain lines that must not be crossed certain lines that must be crossed. And sometimes the right thing to do is, 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 is not what will produce the greatest good. Sometimes producing the greatest good would violate somebody's rights. Or sometimes we have a duty to do something that's going to not necessarily make things go as well as possible. And these are sort of two conflicting views of ethics. And what I'm going to try to convince you of in this first part is that these different moral philosophies are actually grounded in distinct systems in the brain. Okay. So back to the, the analogy that I alluded to earlier. This is, this is the camera that I got for my birthday a few years ago. Uh, and it's, it's like many uh, digital SLR cameras. It, it, it's good for someone like me because it has these little point-and-shoot settings. So if you're taking a picture of a mountain that's far away in broad daylight, you put it in landscape mode and point-and-shoot, you've got your you know, passable landscape photo. If you're taking a picture of someone up close indoors in indoor, you know, natural light, uh, then you put it in portrait mode and point and shoot, you've got your reasonable portrait. Um, and you know, most of the time, almost all the time, I use the point and shoot settings because I don't really do anything all that fancy. But occasionally, I get ambitious. I'll try to do something artsy with the you know, subject out of focus and off to the side and who knows what else. And then you put the camera in manual mode. And in manual mode, you adjust all of the settings by hand, your f-stop and everything else. And the nice thing about having both the automatic settings and the manual mode is that it allows you to navigate the trade-off between efficiency and flexibility. So the automatic settings are very efficient, point and shoot, easy to use, works pretty well almost all the time, but they're not very flexible. They're good for what they're good for, and if you want to do something fancy, they're not going to give you what you want. Manual mode, very flexible. You can do anything with it, but it's not as efficient. You have to know what you're doing. You have to adjust everything yourself. If you don't know what you're doing, or even if you do, you'll make mistakes. But the, the, the idea is that a camera that has both automatic settings and a manual mode gives you the best of both worlds. You can point and shoot when that's all you need, but you also have the flexibility to adjust everything by hand if that's what you need. And the trick is to know when to point and shoot and when to put the camera in manual mode. Well, it turns out that the human brain has the same basic design that the brain has automatic settings and the brain has a manual mode. And I'll give you an example not from the moral domain to illustrate this. So sometimes we're faced with questions that ask us to delay gratification. You can say, you can have $2 right now, or if you're willing to wait a week, I'll give you $4. Um, and so there's this tension between now versus later. If you're on a diet, you can have that yummy chocolate cake right now, or you can have a slimmer waistline when, 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 when summer arrives. Um, so how does this tension between now and later work? Well, again, it, it, it turns out that there are different systems in the brain that are effectively representing the now and the later. Um, so if you say to someone, you can have this food or you can have this money right now, there are parts of your brain that respond strongly when there's something available right now. Uh, this one's called the ventral striatum. We'll talk about that one a little bit more in a bit. And then the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which takes signals from the ventral striatum and incorporates them in, in, into decisions in an emotional kind of way. These parts of your brain are basically saying, yeah, 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 good, gimme, gimme right now. Um, 
And then there are other systems in your brain that can say, well, hmm, wouldn't it be better to have $4 in a week? I mean, that's 100% return on a week's investment, not so bad. Um, uh, and this is a different set of neural systems. The part of your brain that comes online and that is especially active when you say, I'm going to hold off and go for something bigger later, is a different set of brain regions. Uh, and, and, and a critical one is this one here, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And this is essentially an automatic setting. Generally speaking, when money, when food is available, good, take it. Uh, and, and so your sort of point-and-shoot settings are saying, gimme, gimme now. And then you have this manual mode kind of response that says, no, wait, hold on. Yes, that's good in general, but in this case, you can do even better if you hold off. Um, and, and, and that's a kind of manual mode judgment, controlled, explicit, conscious reasoning, taking into account all of the relevant facts. Uh, now, a difference between the camera and the brain is the camera, you're in one mode or the other. What happens in the brain is that these two things run simultaneously and they can produce conflicts. So this is not about morality. Now on to morality. So I, I sort of got into this business by thinking about some philosophical dilemmas that philosophers have been arguing about for a few decades now. And one of them, uh, the, the set of dilemmas overall is known as the trolley problem. How, how many of you are familiar with the trolley problem? How many of you have no idea what I'm talking about? Okay, so we got a good mix. Uh, so this is, this is, uh, th this is one, one version of uh, one trolley dilemma. You've got this trolley here headed towards these five people. And you can hit a switch that will turn the trolley away from the five and on to the one. Um, for those of you who are trolley virgins, uh, do a show of hands, how, how many of you think it's okay to hit the switch so that instead of having it run over five people, it'll only run over one person? Okay to hit the switch, hands going up. How many of you say no? Okay, so, so not that many people voting, but, but of the voting, <laughs> the ones who are voting, come on, you've got to participate. This is St. This is John's, come on. Uh, I, the, 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 the ones who are voting, the ones who have already said this is okay. Okay, so now, what's going on here? Well, as I will show you, based on evidence, there's a system in your brain that looks at this and says five lies versus one. That sounds like a good deal. Uh, rather like the system that says $4 instead of $2. That sounds like a good deal. And then there's a part of your brain that could respond emotionally to this, but says, eh, all right. Um, and as a result, this tends to dominate. And so people vote with John Stuart Mill and say, for the greater good, better to save more lives. Um, now, we get a different case here. This is called the Footbridge case. The trolley is headed towards these five people, and now the only way to save them is to push this large individual off of this footbridge. He will land on the tracks, and he will get squashed by the train, and he will die. But it will stop the train from running over these five people. Now, I know what you're thinking. Why can't you jump yourself? Will this guy really be able to stop the trolley? Trust me, this will work, and there's no other way to do it, okay? You have to accept this as, 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 as premises. Now, accepting those premises, how many of you think it's okay to, to, to push this guy off the footbridge to save the five? Some of you say yes, how many of you say no? By a bunch, bunch of you saying no, and, and uh, now more of you saying no for this than for this, and, and this is the typical pattern. So what it turns out that you've got your same Manual mode is saying five versus one, that sounds like a good deal. But here the emotional response is a little bit different. This, on, on, on my, my computer, this looks more like eyes instead of a kind of a facial splatter. But this is, you get the idea. So most people here say that this is not okay. And this fits with a kind of Kantian perspective on morality, which is to say, yes, it's nice to save lives, but this would be a violation of this man's rights. You cannot just use him as a trolley stopper in this way. Uh, 
even if it would promote the greater good. And what I'm going to now try to tell you, sh show you is evidence that this is indeed what's, what's, what's going on. So now, for, for those of you who are philosophical scholars, you may have certain objections to my use. I'm going I'm to call the judgments where you say that you go with the greater good, that's a utilitarian judgment. And I'm going to call the judgment where you say, no, you can't do that, even though it would produce better. I'm going to call that deontological or Kantian. For reasons I won't get into, a lot of people object to this. Kant wouldn't like it. This is Kant's grave in Königsberg, and this is the, this is the direction of rotation as uh, I... I abuse these, these traditional philosophies. So forgive me for using these terms the wrong way, but I, I think in the end it's a fruitful way to speak even if it's not a way that a lot of philosophers would approve of. And we, we can talk more about whether this is illegitimate or not later. Okay, so I'll give you one of my favorite examples of this phenomenon. So here we have, this is a composite of brains of patients that have damage to a part of the brain called the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. I mentioned this before as one of the gimme gimme now regions. Um, and uh, Patients who have damage to this region. So this region is important for integrating emotional responses into decisions. How many of you have heard of Phineas Gage? So a bunch of, okay, so Phineas is a good showing right here. Phineas Gage is a 19th century railroad foreman who lived in Vermont. He got an iron spike in his eye socket and out the top of his head in a, in a, in a, in a uh, train, in a, in a, in a railroad accident, and the remarkable thing is that afterwards he seemed to be fine. He could do math, he could have conversations about you know, Aeschylus or whatever people talk about, uh, and, uh, and, uh, but, but then his personality changed dramatically, and he no longer was the upstanding sort of virtuous guy. He turned into this kind of lawless wanderer, and more recently it's emerged that this part of the brain is important for guiding one's decisions, and especially one's social behavior based on emotions, and so remember what I I told you. The theory about what's going on with the Footbridge case is you have a, a cost-benefit reasoning that says, hey, five lives for one. Sounds good. But then, if you're a normal person, you have this emotional response that says, ah, no, that just feels wrong. And I think it's that, ah, that's making people say this is a violation of someone's rights. Uh, and if that theory is correct, then what you'd expect is that the people who have this kind of emotion-related brain damage uh, will be more utilitarian. Their judgments will look more like John Stuart Mill. And that's what this graph shows. So these are all dilemmas like the Footbridge case. This is the proportion of people who say that it's okay to do the horrible thing uh, in the name of the greater good. And when you look at normal people and people with other kinds of brain damage, they, you know, just give, for this case, not so much, for this case, plenty. But the black dots are the data for the patients with the Phineas Gage emotion-related damage. And as you can see, you don't need statistics to analyze this, they are overwhelmingly more utilitarian than everybody else. So the idea is that if you're a, a neurological patient with emotional deficits, at least of this kind, you'll look at the Footbridge case, you'll say five lives for one, that sounds like a good deal. And you don't have that emotional response that makes other people go, ooh, uh, and, and as a result, you'll say that it's okay. And that's what these, the, the data show. Now, there's a lot of evidence now that this is what's going on. And when, normally when I give talks to scientific audiences who demand lots of different kinds of evidence, uh, I tell them about the original brain imaging studies that I did with this where we looked at people's brains with brain scanners while they were thinking about cases like this. And then other studies where you've got patients with emotion-related brain damage and studies of psychopaths who have emotional deficits and people with a disorder called alexithymia, which is uh, an inability, sort of a, a disconnection from one's own emotions. And then uh, studies looking at people's physiological reactions, how much do your 
palms sweat? How much does your heart beat when you think about these things? Uh, study, there's one study where people actually given essentially Prozac, which uh, boosts emotional responses in the short term and, and, and affects moral judgment. And then finally, personality questionnaires. In the interest of time, I'll just tell you, all this supports the same idea that I told you before, which is that there's an emotional response that makes you say no, even though it makes cost-benefit utilitarian sense. And if you want to, I'll tell you more about this later. But that's the basic story. Okay. I'll tell you one, one study that, that I've done recently that kind of breaks this down into a little more detail to give you a flavor of how we're getting a more detailed understanding of these things. So this is work done with my graduate student Amitai Shenhav. When you ask people to make an all things considered judgment, the idea is that they're taking into account the cost benefits. Well, gee, you can save five lives instead of one. And then there's that emotional response. So now what we want to do is try to understand, well, where is that calculation taking place? Where is that initial emotional response? And then what's put these two things together to get an all things considered judgment. So how do you do this? Well, we have people respond to these moral dilemmas and we ask them to do three different things. Sometimes we just ask them, don't tell us what's right or wrong, just tell us what will produce better results. And then sometimes we say, don't tell us what's right or wrong, just tell us which, which of these two actions do you feel worse about. And then we say, other times, okay, tell us all things considered whether or not it's morally acceptable to do this horrible thing in the name of the greater good. And the idea is that by comparing what's going on in their brains when they're doing this versus this versus this, we can isolate the different parts of the brain that are playing these different roles. Okay? So what do we find? So one thing we find is that when you look at the all things considered judgments versus the other things, we see increased activity in our friend the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that was damaged in Phineas Gage, the part of the brain that was damaged in those patients who said, sure, push the guy off the footbridge, and part of the brain that is involved in saying, gimme, gimme now, when you have a choice between getting something now or something larger later. So this fits nicely with this, although, um, well, there are, there are actually some interesting complications, but, but um, this is consistent with the idea that this is a kind of integrator, where different emotional signals are coming together. And then we can say, well, what's going on when people are just saying, how bad does this feel? It turns out there's another part of the brain, which, is, which has connections to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex called the amygdala. And your amygdala does a lot of things, but one of the important things that it does is it's a kind of early warning alarm system that if you see a snake, let's say, your amygdala goes and alerts your attention, tells other parts of your brain to pay attention to this and gives you an emotional signal that says, hey, this might be dangerous, you might need to do something about this. Well, the more activity you see in the amygdala, um, the, the more people say, this, this feels bad, this action. And then when you look in the amygdala, when people are making all things considered judgments, the, if there's more activity in the amygdala, people are more likely to say, oh no, you can't do that. Right? So it's like the amygdala is, is playing this role of, ah, the initial emotional response. And then, I didn't show this, but the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which I mentioned before, is implementing that cost-benefit reasoning. And then your ventromedial prefrontal cortex is putting those two things together and making an all things considered kind of judgment. Okay, so we've got this ah, well, where does that come from? You're reading words on the screen in this experiment. Is it just going right from words to ah? Or is there something in between? Well, one thing you might think that's in between is a kind of visual imagery, a kind of movie in your mind. When I describe the footbridge, the man is on the footbridge, there are five people, there's a train coming. You picture this in your mind's eye. That's the hypothesis. And then what you're actually responding to emotionally is that sensory set of images, that movie in your mind. Well, if that's true, 
how can we test this? So this is research done with my postdoc Eleanor Amit. Um, and the idea is that, and, and, and I would say the, the neural, the brain regions that are active when people are thinking about these things is consistent with the idea that there's a kind of movie playing. I can give you more details about that. And so the thought is that this makes you go, ah, and then you say no. So, so this is just what I said. So how do we test this? So what Eleanor did was she said, well, if it's a visual image that's making you go, oof, no, don't do that, then people who are more prone to think visually as opposed to thinking verbally, let's say, might be more likely to say no. So how do you measure that? So what she did is she gave everybody two tests. One is a visual test and one is a verbal test. And the way it works is one is you have to make these judgments about which of these shapes are more similar than others, and they're done with pictures. And the other ones, you do these lists of words which describe the shapes, and you say which of these lists of words are more similar to each other. Um, and you have people do both, and then everyone gets a percent accuracy on one and a percent accuracy on the other, and then you subtract the two scores. And what this tells you for every person who's in this experiment, how relatively good are they at visual stuff versus verbal stuff? And then the prediction is that the people who are relatively better at the visual stuff and who then tend to have more visual style to their thinking will be more likely to say, no, 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 you can't push the guy off the footbridge, etc. And that's what we find. So if you are more visual, these are the visual verbal scores. If you're more visual, if you're in this corner, you're less utilitarian. You're more likely to say, no, you cannot kill those people uh, to save more people. So this is consistent with this idea. Now this is a correlation. We can then try to push this around. So then what Eleanor did is she said, well, we'll have people make these moral judgments, and then at the same time we'll make them either do something visual or verbal. And the idea is that if you're doing a visual task at the same time, that's going to interfere with your visual thinking about the moral problem. And if you do a verbal thing at the same time, that's going to interfere with your verbal thinking about the problem. And so what she predicted is that the people who, when you make people do something visual at the same time, you become more utilitarian because the image that makes you go, ah, is being blocked by this other visual task that you have to do at the same time. And that's what we find. So this is uh, with doing it with words. This is doing it just with, 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 with just responding to the dilemmas with nothing. People become more utilitarian. This is utilitarian judgment when they get the, specifically when they get the visual interference. So now we're sort of going around the brain a bit and finding sort of different parts of the brain that are having effects on our different kinds of thinking, which obviously have something to do with the visual cortex, parts of the brain back here that are involved in vision. Um, how these things influence moral judgment. Um, another study along the same lines, this is with, with Kurt Gray, who's actually now at the University of Maryland, if you'd like to drive down the road and visit him. Um, so he thought, well, maybe this can happen even in a kind of vicarious, imagined way. So he gave a version of one of these trolley kinds of things where he said, you're on this glass-bottom boat, and you can see this diver, and you can see this submarine that has these other people in it. And for whatever reason, something terrible has happened, and the only way to save the lives of the five people in the submarine is to cut off the oxygen to the diver and, uh, and, and send the oxygen to the five. So it's a, just an underwater trolley problem, and you can see what's going on. In the other version, he says, you're on this boat, and you know exactly what's going on, but you can't see it. Um, you're just in the machine room here. And it turns out, when people are asked to imagine that they can see, versus if they imagine that they can't, they're more likely to say that it's wrong if they're imagining that they can see it. Now, they're all just sitting in a psychology lab. They're not actually seeing anything. It's all in their minds. But telling them to imagine it this way, instead of telling them to imagine it that way, affects the judgment. 
Okay. So back to our sort of dual process story here. We've talked about the emotion side. Now let's talk, oops, a little bit about the reasoning side. What is going on uh, when, when what, 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 what in the brain is, is, is enabling us to say five lies for one? That sounds good. Um, and again, there's been, now there's a lot of evidence about this. So I've done a lot of brain imaging studies showing here, 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 showing again and again this part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is more active when people make utilitarian judgments. Um, what does this part of the brain do? This is the part of the brain that's working hard when you are doing things that you think of as thinking. So if you're remembering a phone number, if you're really trying to understand something, when it feels effortful, when you feel like you have to pay attention, that's when your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is engaged. Um, and and so it seems like this is, this is the sort of core, this is the key brain region for this kind of reasoning, and it turns out for a lot of reasoning in general. Other studies, so if you put people under cognitive load, if you make them do something else, not visual, but something else, it slows down their utilitarian judgments. Putting them under time pressure makes people less utilitarian. You can zap people's brains with magnets. We won't get into that. Uh, and, uh, and, and questionnaires about do you like to think about things a lot, these predict people's judgments. But you'll take my word for it that there's a lot of evidence that this sort of controlled cognition which depends on this part of the brain, the DLPFC, is responsible for this kind of utilitarian reasoning. I'll give you one example of a recent experiment that, 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 that demonstrates this. So this is done with a graduate student Joe Paxton and Leo Unger who's now in medical school in, in California. Um, so they use this thing called the cognitive reflection test. The cognitive reflection test basically consists of these tricky math problems where the first answer that you think of is wrong, but if you think about it a little bit harder, you can get it right. And so here's an example. Say a ball and a bat cost $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Now, most people's first thought is 10 cents, and that's wrong. The right answer is 5 cents. If you think about it, 10 cents minus a dollar, you think a dollar and 10 cents, that's a 90 cent difference, so that doesn't work. 5 cents, a dollar five, subtract, it's a dollar, it all works out. Um, so there are, th there are three of these questions uh, on, on, on this test, and then we have some distractors. And what Joe is saying is, well, the, the, the experience of taking this test and going and getting it right and going, oh, wait, gosh, my first thought can be wrong. I have to think a little bit harder. That sounds kind of like what we think is going on in these trolley cases where you have a first thought and then you might think a little more. It's not necessarily the right answer, but it's, an, it's a counterintuitive answer. And so Joe predicted that people who take this test are going to be more utilitarian. And people who are good at this test in general are going to be more utilitarian. And that's indeed what he found. So the more correct answers on this test, the more utilitarian people's judgment. By the way, another Amitai who I mentioned before did a study where he showed that people who score higher on the cognitive reflection test are also less likely to believe in God. And they're more likely to have become more atheist since their childhood, regardless of whether they were raised in a religious home or not. So a little religion tie-in. Uh, okay. Um, Here's another example of counterintuitive reasoning. Um, so this is using a, 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 a scenario uh, that comes from a researcher named Jonathan Haidt, the case of Julian Mark. These are actually, uh, this, is, uh, these, this is a brother and sister uh, in, in England uh, who were separated, they're actually half brother and sister, they were separated at birth or very early in age. They met later in life, didn't know they were siblings, fell in love uh, and, uh, and you know, had this relationship and a lot of people, including their mothers, 
brother's not very happy about this. A judge told them that if they continued doing their thing as brother and sister, which they inevitably are, they, uh, they would be put in prison. Uh, this, this is a case of consensual adult incest. And while this is not, you know, incest is not a sort of hot button political or moral issue these days, it's a nice <laughs> test case because people have very strong intuitive responses to it. Um, and there's this phenomenon, what Haidt calls moral dumbfounding, where if you ask people, is it okay for this brother and sister to have sex? And people say, no, of course not. You say, why not? Well, they could have children with birth defects. And you say, no, no, he, they use eight kinds of birth control and he's had a vasectomy and all this stuff. And they say, now is it okay? And they say, no, it's not okay. And say, why? And say, oh, it'll ruin their relationship. And say, no, actually, they're fine. They didn't grow up together. Is it okay now? They go, no, it's not okay. And they, they, it doesn't matter what you can argue with them, they will, will not change their mind. And the idea is that it's because they have this strong intuition that this is just, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Um, so we wanted to see, can we get people to change their minds? And in particular, we wanted to try to document moral reasoning. Now you might say, well, who needs to document that? We engage in moral reasoning all the time. Excuse me. It's actually not clear. Because we think we engage in moral reasoning all the time, but if you're Jonathan Haidt, you might say, actually, we just have emotional responses to things, and we give answers based on those emotional responses, and all of our reasoning is basically just BS. That We, we, we make up stories to justify our, our, our judgments, but our judgments are not based on any reasoning. They're just based on a gut reaction, like, blah, um, when we think about brothers and sisters having sex. Um, that's a caricature of Haidt's view, but that's the view that, that, that's still on the table, whether or not he, he himself holds it. So, Joe wanted to see, can we, can we talk people out of their, their um, incest attitudes? So he wanted to see, first we gave people what we would consider a relatively strong argument for saying that it's okay for this brother and sister to do their thing. Uh, and so the argument basically says, oops, says uh, for most of our evolutionary history, there, was, there, was no con there were no effective contraceptives. And basically our disgust response is nature's way of preventing you from having sex with your siblings so that you don't have children with birth defects, because that really is, 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 is a possibility. But in this case, they're not planning on having kids. They, again, using eight kinds of birth control. So if you have this disgust response that's ultimately about, uh, about birth defects, and birth defects are not a worry in this case, then don't worry about your disgust response. You may or may not agree with this argument. You may think it's not as strong an argument as others do, but it's certainly stronger than the weak argument. So the weak argument goes like this. Basically, love is good. Brothers and sisters should love each other, so they should make love. Uh, that's, that's, that, that, that. And so it, it, it just sort of preserves the structure of an argument, but is not very, very cogent. Um, so so people, people responded... Uh, so people, I'm glad these stimuli are available free of charge if you'd like to enjoy them in your own, your own time. Um, okay, so so we gave people, so we gave people. The incest description, Mark and Julie, we gave them either the strong argument or the weak argument, and then we had them make their judgment either immediately or we said, think about it for a couple of minutes. And the idea is that if you're reasoning, the signature of reasoning should be, A, it takes some time. If you're doing it immediately, then it's an intuition. Um, and B, it should be sensitive to the quality of an argument. Um, and so here's what we found. So if you ask people to respond immediately, kind of surprisingly, the strong argument, the weak argument, here's how, the, on this axis is how acceptable is their having sex. Uh, and uh, no difference between the strong and weak argument, which is kind of scary. But if you give people a chance to think about it, then it spreads out. People say, all right, 
I can see where you're coming from with this kind of evolutionary story. I guess it's not so terrible. And then people say, oh, that argument is so bad. I'm going to say it's even worse. Uh, uh, so so this, is, this is evidence that there is a kind of, it's not all just emotional intuition, that we can stop, we can think, and we can change our minds and even make judgments that are counterintuitive, that run against what we might otherwise intuitively say. Okay, now you might ask, okay, so we've talked about trolleys running people over. We've talked about brothers and sisters having sex. Does this have anything to do with anything really important? Um, so I get asked that question a lot, and I thought, well, I better do some research. Uh, so this is research that was done with a wonderful uh, undergraduate thesis student named Katie Ransohoff, who's also now in medical school in California, and then Dan Wickler, who's a philosopher at the Harvard School of Public Health. And we said, well, let's see if we can give kind of medical dilemmas that have this kind of trolley-like structure, and let's see if different people think about these things differently in a way that suggests that this stuff matters in the real world. So first, our dilemmas are things like rationing drugs or equipment or organs where you might say, you cannot have access to this drug that you need to save your life because we need these drugs to save these people over here who will benefit even more from it. So it's like a bad thing for you in order to have a greater good for others. Quarantining an infectious patient. Sorry, you are not allowed out of, of this room. We're in the hospital because other, you'll make other people sick even though that means you're going to die. Or cheap prevention versus expensive treatment. Someone needs a $10,000 operation or they're going to die. But you could spend that $10,000 on cheap preventative medicine for 1,000 people and probably save five people's lives or something like that. Do you do that? Um, so these are the kinds of real-world problems that doctors and people in public health face. And we pose these questions to ordinary people, to medical doctors, and to people in public health. Um, so uh, first thing, just as a bit of validation, we gave everybody the trolley sorts of cases, and we gave everybody the medical cases. And what you find is that there's this nice correlation where what you say about the trolley cases, if you're more utilitarian about the trolley cases, more willing to say, do the horrible thing to produce a greater good, um, on those cases, you're more likely to say the same thing about the medical cases, suggesting that when we think about these kind of cartoony sorts of cases, it's the same underlying thought processes that are involved when you think about these more realistic real-world problems. And then where it gets really interesting is when you look at the doctors versus people in public health. So if you're a doctor, your focus is on the individual patient. You're supposed to do what's best for them. You're not, your job is not to worry about society at large. Your patient is your patient. You should do no harm, as the Hippocratic Oath says. In public health, in contrast, your patient is the society. Your goal is to develop policy and procedures that, give, that maximize the society's health overall. So the prediction is that these people are going to be saying essentially, no, you can't push that guy off the footbridge, and the public health people are going to be saying, you can save more lives that way, go for it. Um, and that's what we find. So for both the non-medical cases, these are our sort of trolley sorts of cases, and for the medical cases, the, 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 the people in public health are giving more utilitarian answers than the doctors. Now, what's interesting about this is that this suggests that this is something that's really going on in the real world. Well, why should that be? Well, there are two ways that the people in public health can end up being different from the doctors. One is it's self-selection. The people who tend to think in this utilitarian way tend to go into public health. The other is training. They come in like everybody else, but then they get trained to think this way. But either way, that's something that's happening in the real world. People are not choosing to go into public health because of what they said about a trolley problem. They're choosing because they're drawn to the real substance of having that as a career, uh, which presumably influences the way they have that career. Likewise, if it's about training, 
training, that they're not being trained on trolley problems, they're being trained on real medical and, 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 and public health issues. So either way, whether it's self-selection for people going into public health or training that people get going into public health, there's a, a real world effect that is producing this difference in how people think morally. And so what this tells us is that trolley psychology is actually going into the life and death decisions that doctors and people in public health make. Okay. Uh, if you look at the comments people made, they're very telling. So like this is a, a representative doctor. The doctor says, to make a life and death decision on behalf of someone who is capable of making that decision for themselves, uh, unless they forfeited it by doing something terrible, is a gross violation of moral and ethical principles. It's almost channeling Kant. Uh, and then here you've got this John Stuart Mill. In these extreme situations, I felt a utilitarian philosophy, I actually said the U word, I felt a utilitarian philosophy was most appropriate. Ultimately, that is the most moral thing to do. It seems the least murky and most fair. This is your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex talking. And if you sort of go through and look at, sort of quantify the kinds of comments they make, you can see that the people in public health are much more utilitarian. Um, now, interestingly, we, we've seen a couple of different ways to get to utilitarianism. So on the one hand, you can have brain damage. That can make you more utilitarian. You can also be in the kind of person who goes into public health or who has had public health training. And we think that what's going on there is it's not a... So in the brain damage people, it's a lack of an emotional response. In the public health geeks, it's tending to use your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex to override your emotional response, or maybe you don't have as much as other people. And then there's what I think is a, a possible third phenomenon. Um, so this is work done with Alec Chakrov, and then this guy who's now going, it's Hui Yoi when I met him, but now he's Bill. Uh, he's he's <laughs> recently disrobed, uh, but but he's a, he is or was a, a Buddhist monk. And, and he kind of showed up at my lab meeting. We thought, hmm, maybe we can use his expertise. So we, 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 we gave these moral dilemmas to Buddhist meditators from two different traditions as well as sort of regular people who do meditation and then people who don't do any of this stuff. And the idea is that in at least one Buddhist tradition, you're supposed to try to maximize your feelings of empathy for everybody. Um, and so here, so here are the results that are consistent with that. So uh, this is ordinary people's utilitarian judgments. People who just do meditation they look like everybody else. And then you get the Mahayana Buddhist meditators, and they are more utilitarian than most people. Now, I don't think it's because they're brain damaged, and I don't think it's because they're public health geeks. Uh, the hypothesis is that they, they don't just think about the guy who's getting pushed off the footbridge. They think about the five people on the tracks, and they, they think about them as well, whereas we tend to just think about or tend to disproportionately think about the person who's getting pushed. And then there's this other sect of Buddhists where this is, again, I, I'm probably butchering the philosophy, but this is the, this, the Cliff Notes version that I got is they're not really so much about spreading their empathy around woof, for the whole world. They're just kind of about like your own personal journey towards nirvana. This is the, uh, what are they, uh, oh wait, sorry, within the, uh, this is more data on them. Within these Buddhist guys, the more hours of meditation they have, the more utilitarian they become which is very interesting. That is, it's really sort of having this serious practice where you sort of expand your empathy day after day for hours at a time, more than two hours a day. They're the ones who are really driving this effect. Then, uh, and by the way, most people think this is not what Buddhist monks will do. So if you ask people, would, a, would the Buddha say it's okay to push the guy off the footbridge? They say, no, that's the bad thing to do. But actually, it's the opposite. Most people think that the Buddhists are going to be less utilitarian and they're actually more. But 
They are right about the Theravada Buddhists, and these are the ones I mentioned before, who are more about the personal journey to Nirvana. They're less utilitarian than, than ordinary people, and a lot less utilitarian than these guys. So it depends on whether your robe are red or orange. This is the, this, this is the Dalai Lama gang. Um, this is more Indonesia. Okay, so different paths to the utilitarian way. Um, all right, so in ordinary people, what is it that pushes your moral buttons? What is it that makes you say, oof, that feels wrong? We've talked about that it's an emotional response. We've talked about where in the brain it happens. But what are you actually responding to? So now we're going to do some low-tech, pencil-and-paper kind of research to try to figure this out. So here's uh, the switch case. That, the, the, this is the original trolley case. This is just the overhead view. Uh, so your trolley is headed towards these five sticks, which are people. And then uh, you can hit a switch that will turn the trolley away from the five and onto this track will run over one person. And just as we'd said before, most people say that it's okay to hit the switch. This is just you know, the, the, the original switch result. And then you get your footbridge. Uh, now we got the trolley headed towards these five people. And now our friend Joe here can push this guy. He's not a big guy. Now he's a guy with a big backpack. You push him off the footbridge. He dies, but you save the five. And here most people say that it's not okay. So the question is, what is the key difference between this case and this case that makes people say no most of the time here and yes most of the time there? Um, and, and in all these cases, we did things to try to control for people's real-world expectations. Would you really be able to kill someone, save someone by pushing someone in front of a trolley and stuff? And I can tell you more about that if you want. But trust me that people are, are in these analyses, it's reflecting they're taking the situation seriously and not just working around it. Okay, so footbridge, what about just being close to the guy when you're pushing him. So we can compare the original footbridge case to this case here where instead of pushing the guy off the footbridge, you hit this switch that drops this guy through this trap door onto the, to the, to the tracks, right? So it's the same thing, it's just trap door action at a distance um, versus, uh, versus dropping, the, dropping the guy. So this, we're getting into heavy trolleyology here, so I gotta take off my... <laughs> And we give these to separate groups of people, and about 30% of people say, 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 say this is okay. The number doubles to about 60% when you make it farther away. Hmm. Uh, tells you something about what's going on. But it's still not totally clear. So one thing you might say is, well, here you're far away. You're also not touching the guy. Here you're close and you're touching. So is it about the touching? Is it about the close? How many of you think it's, or both, how many of you think it's about touching? How many of you think it's about being close? How many think it's about both? I think that was more than 100% when they add, add all those together. That's okay. Um, so, uh, so we can use the footbridge switch case to tease this apart. So now you're dropping the guy through the trap door, but you're close, so not touching but close. And it turns out it seems to be about touching. That is, whether you're dropping close, dropping far, doesn't matter. What matters is, are you touching the guy or are you not touching the guy? And it seems to be about touching. But we're not out of the woods yet. Now, even here, you're touching, you're close, you're, you're, you're sorry, you're, you're touching and, and, you're, and you're close, and you're, you're not touching, and you're, and, and, and you're, you're, sorry, you're touching and you're close, you're not touching and you're close. But here, there's, there's a more subtle difference. In this case, you are using your muscles to directly impact the person, whereas here, uh, you're, you're not only not touching, you also don't have this kind of tactile relationship. So we can do a, another intermediary case, which I call the footbridge pole case. So now you push the guy off the footbridge with a pole. Um, <laughs> 
And so there, you're, 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 you're not touching the guy, at least in a conventional sense, uh, but, you, but you are using your muscle force to directly impact the person. And it turns out that it's this personal force that really matters. It's not really about touching per se, push with your hands, push with a pole. It's about having your muscles directly impact this. And when people respond to these kinds of cases, when we look at their brains, there are some hints that there's actually activity in part of the brain that controls movement. That, that when, even just when you think about this, you're thinking about this in this embodied way, sort of going, activating the circuits that you yourself would use for this kind of pushing. Um, okay. Uh, so this pushing business is a kind of pushing with your hands versus with a switch is a kind of indirectness. There's another kind of indirectness that's very common in the modern world especially. When powerful people do things, good things, bad things, they rarely do them with their own hands. They have their other people, my people, your people, our people do things for your people. Uh, you have your people do things for you. And so it's an interesting question. Is just as pushing with your hands versus hitting a switch, that kind of distance, do you get the same kind of thing when there's distance socially, where I have you do this and then you go ahead and do it? And this, this idea came from a, a colleague of mine, Max Bazerman, who, who read this article in the New York Times, where it was about um, these cancer patients who had these cancer drugs that they really needed uh, very badly, but not very many people needed these drugs. And Merck Pharmaceuticals, the big uh, pharmaceutical company, made these drugs, and they were not very pro profitable because not a lot of people needed them, but the people who needed them needed them very bad. And they thought, well, if these drugs are going to be profitable, well, we don't know what they thought. But what they did was they sold the rights to produce the drugs to this smaller company, and then the smaller company jacked up the price 10 times. Uh, and the people who needed these drugs, they weren't covered by their insurance. And so they basically had to choose between the heating bill and food and getting their cancer drugs. And some people thought this was terrible, and perhaps they're right. Um, what we wanted to know is, did, did Merck kind of get away with this by, 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 or could they have gotten away with this by having this other company do their dirty work, if you think it's dirty work? And so we set up an experiment where we basically asked people about case, a case like this Merck case. In the direct agency version of this, the big pharmaceutical company just raises the price and leaves these cancer patients in trouble. In the indirect ver version, they sell the rights to this firm to brand and distribute the drug, and then this other company hikes up the price. And they know, in, the, in our experiment, they know that the other company is going to do this. There's no uncertainty about what's going to happen. It's just, is there this intermediary? Now, if you ask people together, you say, which of these is worse, hiking the price up yourself or doing it indirectly, people say, oh, well, they're about the same, but it's even kind of a little worse to do it indirectly. It's kind of sneaky. But if you give them people these things separately, you get a very different answer. They say that this is better than this, that, you're, that, it's, that it doesn't seem as bad when uh, you do your bidding through another person as opposed to doing it directly. And so this is, this is consistent with this dual process idea. When you have the two in front of you, your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex can explicitly compare them and say, this, this, the, this is what's going on, and, and then you can react to that. Whereas when you just get these things separately, you just say, huh, I guess they don't seem as bad. It was that other company that did it, even if you know that they knew exactly what was going on. Ooh, red light, what does that mean? Um, okay. Um, are we, is that, does that mean we're short on time? Am I, am I going too long? Anyway, well, this, all right, well, um, all right. So this is back to Amitai again. Um, this is another experiment where now we're using what we call rescue dilemmas. So in, this, in these kinds of dilemmas, you're in this boat here, and you're headed towards this one guy who's drowning, and you're going to go save him. And then you get this radio signal that says, oh, no, 
There are these other people over here, and, and you can go the other direction and save them. The question is, do you change course? Do you let this guy die to go over and save these other people? But here's the wrinkle. First of all, you can, we can vary the number of people. So you abandon one to save two, to save five, to save 10, to save 20. And then we can also vary the probability that you'll actually do any good. Maybe this other boat's going to get there in time, and then you'll have let this person die in vain. So basically, there are two parameters that we're varying. How many people are you hopefully going to save if you abandon this person, and what's the probability that you'll succeed? And so you can think of it this way, is that there are these two variables, um, the magnitude, the number of lives at stake, and then the probability, how certain is it that you're actually going to succeed? And to make a sensible judgment, you might think you need to integrate you need to keep track of these two pieces of information and integrate them. And so what Amitai and I did is we did a brain imaging study where we varied this and we varied that, and we looked, what in the brain is keeping track of magnitude? What in the brain is keeping track of probability? And what's keeping track of this all things considered integration of those two factors, where you take into account not only how many lives you might save, but your odds of saving them? Um, Okay. Now, if people were just perfect utilitarian machines, their judgment would look like this. It would be a square. No. This, so let me explain what this means. So this is, uh, the, the, each, each tile in this grid represents a combination of numbers of lives and probability of saving them. And the idea is that when the numbers are low and the probability that, sorry, that the other boat's going to save them is pretty high, then you're in this red zone here where... The, 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 if, you multi, if you take the number of lives at stake, at stake and then multiply it by the probability, so 10 lives uh, with a 50% chance would be, would be worth sort of five lives to an economist. And one versus five, five is bigger, so you would go. So, so if it's less than one, you would say, all right, I'm not going to do it. And then if it's more than one, it's, it's other. So it's these combinations of magnitude and probability, a utilitarian says yes, and then on the other side of the yellow bars are the ones where you'd say no. There'd be the sharp cutoff where you say it's either worth it or it's not when I do the math. This is not what people actually do. What people actually do is they take into account both factors. They're more likely to say go for it when there are more lives at stake. And they're more likely to say go for it if the odds that you're actually going to be able to help are higher. But it's in this graded kind of way, which suggests that people are kind of feeling this as opposed to doing explicit calculations, which sounds a lot like VMPFC, Phineas Gage, what he doesn't have, and less like $2 versus $4, that seems like a good deal. Um, and that's part of what we found. But the part of the thing I want to focus on is this. So there is a, remember I mentioned uh, in the gimme, gimme now, this is you can have a dollar now or $4 later, the part of your brain that was saying, Gimme, gimme now, as your ventral striatum. There are other parts. That's one of the parts. Um, this is a part of the basic mammalian reward system. You see this in rats. You see this in monkeys. Uh, that's essentially saying, how valuable is this thing that I have the option to get or that I'm about to get? It's a reward signal, right? And what you find is that actually this integration of magnitude and probability, how many lives are, are, can one save, and how, what's the odds of saving them, is actually reflected in the signal in this ventral striatum. Um, and the people who are more sensitive in their judgments to the total expected value, so this is sort of how close are you to doing kind of what an economist would tell you to do, their ventral striatums or striata are more sensitive to the, 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 the fluctuations in the expected value. Basically, this part of the brain is tracking kind of in a, in, in a rough, informal kind of way what an economist who's just crunching the numbers would say you ought to do in these cases. Um, now, what's interesting about this is that 
you know, take someone like Harry Truman, who faced the, the horrible decision of whether or not to use nuclear weapons during World War II. Truman presumably had to think about, well, gosh, how many lives could be lost? How many lives could be saved? What are the odds that they'll be lost? What are the odds that they'll be saved? It's a similar kind of problem, at least formally. And if this research generalizes, what this means is that, you know, you might think that Truman is calling in some higher moral faculty to make this grave decision. But what this research suggests is that he's actually using his, 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 his rat food foraging behavior brain. That when we think about things like saving hypothetical lives, uh, when we think about things like that, we're actually using parts of the brain that evolved in mammals that we are common ancestor between us and mouse, so mammals that look something like a mouse, uh, for making decisions about whether I should go try to get food over there or should go try to get food o o o over there. And that may be a, a scary thought. Um, an interesting thing about, about this is when people make judgments about these things involving large numbers of lives, the more lives at stake, the less they care about each additional life. So if it's like one life versus five lives, okay, five, that makes a big difference. When you get to like the 100th life versus the 105th life, like no one cares at all. Now, that makes sense if you're talking about food. If you're full, more cookies, you know, not so appealing, right? But if you're talking about saving lives, there's no reason why the 105th life that you save should be worth any less than the fifth life. But if you're using mammalian reward circuitry that was originally designed for thinking about things like, should I, should I bother getting more food right now and where should I go? It might make sense that we would make moral judgments like this, even if from a certain moral perspective it doesn't make sense. So hold that thought. Um, Another moral dilemma. This, is a, a, this version of it comes from a philosopher named Peter Unger. The original problem comes from a philosopher named Peter Singer. Uh, in this dilemma, if you want to call it a dilemma, you're driving along, and there's this guy who's bleeding by the side of the road. Um, and he says, please take me to the hospital down the road. Um, I'll probably lose my leg. It'll probably have to be amputated if I don't get there soon. And you say, well... I'd like to help this guy, but I just had new leather seats put in my car. He's going to bleed all over these leather seats, uh, and you know it's going to ruin. It's going to cost at least 500 bucks to clean it or replace it, probably more. I'll leave him. Maybe someone else will pick him up. How, how many of you think it's morally monstrous to leave this guy bleeding by the side of the road because you're worried about your seats? How many of you think this is fine? Okay, a couple there. That's right. The future economists, uh, so or psychopaths, we don't know, or public health officials, we like the public, or or Buddhists, we don't know. It could be. Uh, so uh, now consider this case. You're home one day when the mail arrives, uh, and, and, and you get a letter from Oxfam or UNICEF, a reputable international aid organization you have every reason to trust, says, please send us $200 or $500, whatever it is. Your money can be used to give much-needed food and medicine to children in Somalia uh, who uh, are... are, are very desperate, and you know, your, your, your donation of $500 can save at least one person's life, maybe even several people's lives. And you say, well, I'd like to help these people, but I've been thinking of having my car reupholstered, nice leather, so I'll use the money for that. Now, how many of you think it's morally monstrous to spend money on luxuries for yourself when you could use that money to save people's lives in Africa? Yeah, a few people. And, and the hands are more sort of he hesitant, right? How many of you live by that dictum, right? Yeah, a couple maybe, maybe, but not very many people. So there's an interesting question. Why do we say you must help here? You are a moral monster if you are thinking about your leather seats. But here, if you're thinking about your leather seats, you're not a saint, but, you know, you, got, you can have your leather seats. That's all right. Um,
So another wonderful undergraduate student, Jay Musen, uh, uh, wanted to try to do the trolleyology of this moral dilemma. Say, what exactly is going on uh, here? What is it that makes us say that you must help here but not there? And uh, to make, we he did like a gazillion different things, but I'll just give you the, 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 the coolest thing that came out of it. So in one version, he gave people a version where you'd say, okay, there are these people on the other side of the world. You can save them. The story is, um, actually, sorry, they're not on the other side of the world. Here, you, you are vacationing in this poor uh, but lovely country where you have your little cottage that you have for a month up in the mountains by the sea, and a terrible typhoon hits, and there, there's widespread devastation. People are without uh, sanitation and water and food and badly needed medicine, and you can help them you can, even though they're right over there, there's, they're, they're, there's a relief effort on the ground, and you can donate money that will help uh, save these people. And you ask people, how many of you think it's, you have an obligation to give some significant amount of money to help these people? And in response to this, 68% of people say that you ought to do something to help these people in this place where you are vacationing. In a different version, we say, okay, Everything's the same, except you're not there. Your friend is there vacationing. And your friend has a smartphone who's showing you all of the horrible things that are happening. And it turns you can you're at home watching this on your computer, and you can donate to the organization that's on the ground that's helping these people. So the idea is that in this situation, you see, you hear, you know everything that your friend knows. You have all the information your friend has. Um, and you have as much capability of helping as your friend. You know everything, you can do everything, you're just farther away. You're comfortable here at your, 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 your home in the United States instead of in this faraway country. And when you give people this version, about half as many people say you have to help. And the idea is that we're controlling for, you know, I don't know if it's perfect, but we're controlling for pretty much everything that might, you might think that would matter. And the only real difference here is the distance. And when we're just far away, when we think of this as far, um, it doesn't seem as pressing. Now, now we get to part three. So what? So I told you all this stuff about how the mind actually works. Does this actually tell us anything about how it ought to work? Now, I hope that at various points you have what I call normative tingles, where I tell you things like um, what makes people say that it's, that it's not okay to push the guy off the footbridge, and you go, ooh, gosh, that's kind of ridiculous. And that thought that, oof, that's kind of ridiculous is, is a normative thought. There's a thought that there, there's, there's something wrong with the way we're thinking. And that, I think, is the angle into this problem. So we come back to the ought and the is, and we come back to moral intuition. And the idea is now we've talked a little bit about how our intuitions work in general and in some specific cases, and maybe this will inform our thinking about the world of ought. Okay, so... If you ask me, why does science matter for ethics, this kind of cognitive science, I would say this. In fact, I am saying it. Look, uh, science can advance ethics by revealing the hidden inner workings of our moral judgments, especially the ones we make intuitively. And once those inner workings are revealed, we may have less confidence in those judgments, as well as ethical theories that are explicitly or implicitly based on them. And I think that in line with this, there are two ways we can kind of get to moral significance from this science. I call these the direct route and the indirect route. And I mentioned the direct route just now, and I'll flesh this out. So let me give you an example that's not from sort of this kind of moral psychology. So here's a difficult moral ought question. Do, sorry, some of these things are going to get caught off by the video. I had to switch laptops, but it'll, it'll be all right. Uh, do capital juries, juries in death penalty cases, make good judgments? Well, here's a bit of unsettling scientific is. Capital juries are sensitive to race. Uh, people, if you control for everything, people, if you're black, you're more likely to get the death penalty in this in this country, uh, quite sadly. Uh, in fact, there's some research showing that not only if you're black, if you quote-unquote look blacker, 
if you have more stereotypical black features, or as opposed to being black but not having as stereotypical black features, uh, you're more likely to get the, to get the death penalty. Um, these are not actual people who've been convicted of crimes. These are examples of, uh, in case you should know that. Um, so this is an unsettling piece of scientific is. Here's our ought question. Now, here's an easier question, which is cut off, unfortunately. Ought uh, the question is, uh, ought we be sensitive to race when we make these kinds of decisions? Now that's easy. I think most of us here would agree. No, race is not something that should be affecting your judgment when you're deciding if, whether or not someone should have the death penalty. In fact, a lot of people think that we shouldn't be making these decisions at all because there should be no death penalty. But putting that aside, if you're going to be in this death penalty business, you certainly shouldn't be paying attention to race. I think most of us would agree. Um, and if we're willing to add this extra bit of ought that doesn't come from the science, then we can get to this new answer to our original difficult question. No, sometimes they make bad decisions. They make decisions that are biased by race. So the idea is that we have this ought question, we get this scientific is, and this puts us in a, question, in a position to answer an easier ought question, which then gives us a new answer to the difficult question. Now, the, inter the, the point here is that you're not drawing moral conclusions purely from scientific results. The scientific results are telling you something about how things work, introducing a new moral kind of question that's easier to answer. And when you answer that easier question, then you end up in a new place morally. Um, so let's do that with what we've done here. So here's a difficult all question. Do people make good judgments when confronted with moral dilemmas? And we gave you some scientific is. People's judgments are sensitive to things like pushing with a pole versus dropping with a switch, or whether or not the people you could help are far away or nearby. And I, I said that these kinds of things might give you what I call the normative tingle, a sense that there's something a little bit funny, a little bit wrong with the way we're making these judgments. And now we can make that explicit. Uh, should our judgments be sensitive to things like pushing with a pole versus hitting with a switch? Should it matter whether the people are close or far away? Now, you might be tempted to say, take the pushing case. Well, gosh, I really wouldn't want to hang out with someone who could push somebody off a footbridge. But someone who could hit a switch, you know, I could live with that maybe, right? Now, that may be true. It may tell you something about your character that you could bring yourself to do this or not. But let's put the question this way. Suppose that you get a call from a friend who says, hi, I'm on a footbridge. I might have to make a difficult moral decision. Kill this one person to save these five people, would you ever then say, so you said, what should I do? Should I you know, kill one to save five? You, would you then say, well, that depends. Will you be using a switch or will you be pushing with a pole or your hands? <laughs> you would never say that it actually matters in and of itself, although it could be indicative of something that has a broader kind of moral significance. Likewise, it seems strange to say, should I help these people? I can help them. I have the money. They're really in desperate need, so on and so forth. I think it's kind of strange to say, how many miles away are they? Because that really matters. Right, um, But that is, seems to be intuitively how we think about these things. And this suggests that maybe we ought to rethink our moral thinking. Now, that's the direct route. What about the indirect route? This brings us back to the camera analogy, the dual process theory. Um, okay, so... Uh, so we got the camera here. Now, what I think is going on, and this is heresy in many circles, maybe even some circles here. Um, we'll find out later. I, I think that what Mill is really about is dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, manual mode. He is saying, I have these intuitions as well as anybody else, but really what we should be doing is just making things go better, do the math, try to have a society where things go well overall. And Kant says no. There are these lines that we must not cross. There are lines that we must cross. People have rights. We have duties. And 
Kant is presented as the paragon of moral reasoning. I don't think that Kant is a moral reasoner. That's the heretical part. I think he's a moral rationalizer. I think that what Kant is really doing is he has the same intuitive emotional responses as everybody else. He's got a real hot amygdala and a hot ventromedial prefrontal cortex, but instead of just letting that be what it is, he then has to come up with a philosophical system that tells you why your gut reactions are right. And I think that this matters when we're thinking about what our moral philosophy ought to be. Okay, so let's flesh this out. Uh, I'm saying some of our judgments, I think, are driven by automatic settings, and some are driven by manual mode, emotion versus reasoning. Why does that matter? Well, the question is, are, are our automatic settings reliable? Now, if you've read, for example, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, you know that there are all kinds of fun cases in which intuitions are great. You've got the art expert who can immediately blink, spot a forgery. Uh, but then there are also problems. So Warren Harding, Harding, not such a great president, but gosh, he sure did look handsome and presidential. Uh, and a lot of people voted for him and he didn't do a great job. And then there's the tragic case of Amadou Diallo, who was killed by a bunch of police officers who made the split second decision that he was judgment that he was going for a gun instead of going for his wallet to bring out his, his ID. So blinking, automatic thinking can be great sometimes, terrible other, 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 other cases. When is it good and when is it bad? When is it, what does it depend on? And here I think is a general principle. Your automatic settings, your intuitions work best when a situation is familiar in this technical sense, which is denoted by this little star, uh, when they embody the lessons of trial and error experience with similar situations. So let me give you an example. So one way you can have trial and error experience is to have it built into your genes. So for example, we can very quickly recognize fear expressions just from enlarged eye whites. Now this, this, this is not totally clear, but this is a plausible candidate for a kind of evolutionary adaptation that we've inherited. Inherited. Let's suppose that that's true. You might have automatic settings that come from the trial and error of your ancestors, or the, more specifically, the, the errors of your non-ancestors, the ones whose genes didn't make it into your body. Uh, and then there's cultural experience. So how many of you have had a run-in with the KKK? No hands. One. Not many. I guarantee you that you put up pictures of swastikas and men in pointy white hoods, your amygdala goes, ooh, ah, don't like that. It's not because they have done you personally bad. It's because you have cultural experience and you know that these guys are bad news. So, just, but, so it doesn't come from personal experience. It doesn't come from your deep evolutionary history. It's a kind of cultural learning. And then there's individual experience. If I shocked you every time you saw Blue Square, you would have a negative reaction to Blue Squares. And that's not... That's <laughs> not because of something that's in the culture. It's not because of something you inherited. It's because of your personal training. These are the only three ways that you can have trained up automatic responses. You can inherit them from your genes, through your genes. You can inherit them culturally, or you can develop them through your own trial and error experience. Now, I call this the no cognitive miracles principle. Where you need manual mode, where your automatic settings are no, no good, is when you're in unfamiliar situations, situations where you have no genetic, cultural, or personal experience. So what's an example of that? Take learning to drive. Learning to drive is not an innate skill. Our hunter-gatherer ancestors did not have cars. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, contrary to what many 15-year-olds think, cultural familiarity with vehicles is not enough to know how to drive <laughs> competently. Um, and you can't, when you're learning to drive, rely on your personal experience because personal experience is exactly what you don't have. Uh, so if you're going to learn how to drive, you have to use manual mode. You have to think, okay, first, look over the right shoulder, just the mirror. You have to consciously, effortlessly think about all these things. Your dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is working hard when you're learning how to drive. And then once you know how to drive, 
drive, these things become more, more, more automatic. Now, it would be a kind of cognitive miracle if you could just get behind the wheel of a car for the first time and drive like someone who's been driving for 20 years because you don't have the experience, not genetically, not culturally, and not individually. And here's the moral punchline. It would also be a cognitive miracle if our moral instincts were completely reliable. Okay. So I, I, call, I, I, think, I call this problem the secret joke of Kant's soul when it, and, uh, when it comes to, to, to choosing our moral philosophy. And that, 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 that title that comes from uh, a passage in, in, in Nietzsche where he's reflecting on Kant more generally. So here's one of Kant's more famous um, lines from the end of the Critique of Practical Reason, which I know all of you have read uh, cover to cover. Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe. The oftener and more steadily we reflect on them. The starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. Kant is very impressed with the moral law within, with, with what's in your heart. And perhaps that's for good reason. But sometimes, at least from our modern perspective, it looks like Kant's inner moral voice might be a little bit off. This is Kant explaining why masturbation is wrong. So here he says that such an unnatural use and so misuse of one's sexual attributes is a violation of one's duty to himself is certainly into the highest degree opposed to morality. This strikes everybody upon his thinking of it. However, it is not easy to produce a rational demonstration of the inadmissibility of that unnatural use uh, of one's attributes as being a violation of his duty to himself. The ground of proof surely lies in the fact that a man gives up his personality, throws it away when he uses himself merely as a means for the gratification of an animal drive. Uh, this is in a lecture called Concerning Wanton Self-Abuse. Uh, so you may or may not have followed all that, but basically what he's saying is, it's actually kind of funny. He's saying, you're not allowed to masturbate because you're using yourself as a means. Um, a means to an end. Much as the way you might object to pushing the guy off the footbridge because you're using him as a trolley stopper. Um, and, you know, we, we don't share Kant's sort of 18th century Prussian mores, and so this seems kind of funny. But I think that what's actually going on in Kant's philosophy more generally is, 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 is what's going on here. And Nietzsche had the same thought. He wrote uh, in The Gay Science, Kant's joke. Kant wanted to prove in a way that would dumbfound the common man that the common man was right. That was the secret joke of this soul. He wrote against the scholars in favor of the popular prejudice, but for scholars and not for popularity. In other words, Nietzsche's saying, Kant, here's your game. You have the same kind of icky feelings about all these things that the ordinary people do. But for some reason, you feel like you have to make these idle elaborate, very complicated theories that ordinary people can't understand to justify the judgments that, 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 that you and other ordinary people make. Um, and putting this in terms of the camera analogy, it looks like this. What Kant is basically saying is the automatic settings, those intuitions, they're right. And I will derive this from first principles the way Euclid uh, derived the principles of geometry. And then you have people like Bentham and Mill saying, eh, come on. Put, put this aside. Uh, uh, just just use your moral reasoning and don't worry about your icky, icky feelings. Um, now, putting this, sort of bringing this back to the sort of real problems we face, the question is, when should we be relying on our gut reactions and when should we be relying on manual mode, right? Um, are we, are we like drivers who are trying to drive by instinct when what we need to do is think with our dorsolateral prefrontal cortices? Or are we like 
you know, uh, pe people who are responding appropriately, intuitively to the things that we've been biologically and culturally and personally trained to respond to in a reasonable way. Can we trust our automatic settings when we're thinking about things like how to respond to a terrorist attack or whether it's okay to bomb civilians in war or whether we really have a duty to help other people who happen to be far away instead of nearby or whether it's fair to reach this kind of agreement versus that kind of agreement to curb global carbon emissions. Um, in bioethics, thinking about things like whether we should have an organ donation registry that people are automatically signed up for, stem cell research, and so on. In all of these cases, I assure you, people have strong gut reactions. And what I'm wondering is, how much should we be trusting these gut reactions? Um, when should we be relying on them, and when should we be in manual mode? So to summarize, our moral brains have efficient automatic settings. We have these intuitions, and they may be good, probably good most of the time, but, but you would expect that they're not good all the time. Our brains also have a flexible manual mode, uh, a capacity for, for, for conscious, explicit, principled reasoning. And I think our task as moral citizens in the modern world, where things are not necessarily the way that we've been trained up for, culturally or biologically or personally, our challenge is to learn when we need to point and shoot and when we should put ourselves in manual mode. And to sort of bring this back to the original issue that we started with about the role of science and ethics, I would say that science can't give us good answers by itself, but that we can't get good answers to our uniquely, distinctively modern moral problems without a scientific understanding of the tools that we bring to those problems, to the cognitive processes that are happening here. So thanks very much, uh, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts.